the Wildlife Observer Network. All right, we are recording. I am rusty. It has been a while. Um, I'm Tony Crowsdale with my buddy. George Armistead. Happy to be talking with you again, man. Yeah, man. It's been a while. This is Birding Today, part of the Wildlife Observer Network. Um, as many of you know, I had a baby July 3rd, so my life is different. And <laughs> the time the podcast has diminished, although I knew this was coming um, and so that's why we put a lot of content up when we started the network in the spring. So we'd have a lot of content, um, already when we launched. So now we're going to normalize, which is probably, you know, a few podcasts a month rather than a few podcasts a week, like we were doing, but that was always the intention. So yes, this is birding today where we discuss, uh, recent happenings in the world of birding, um, recreational and scientific aka ornithology yes indeed what you been up to buddy oh man i've been burden a lot uh i guess that should come as no surprise um but yeah like um actually spent most of the week last week in cape charles virginia um my was my dad always goes down there trying to catch the big peregrine flight um and it hasn't really materialized this year uh, and mo- I was there for a week. I was, you know, kind of working like normal out of the hotel room, but took a little bit of more time for birding. Uh, and there was, there was, it was really kind of a dead period for the first uh, five, six days. And then the morning I left, uh, morning I headed out to come back to Philly, um, or the day I headed out that morning, we had a hell of a flight. Um, just like in a couple hours, we had. I think it was like 6,000 blue jays. They had, they counted over 17,000 for the day. Uh, so that was pretty awesome. We had a bunch of warblers. We had a fly catcher that gave us fits. Uh, still not really sure what it was. Um, but yeah. And then got back here to Philly, you know, the, the weather was good. Went out, had a couple Connecticut warblers, um, you know, at penny pack on the Delaware and just uh, kept, kept on rolling. So, uh, yeah, the weather's been good for birds. So I've been out and after them. So it's been kind of, kind of nice. That's lovely. Yeah. I've, um, luckily I work in a park that can be pretty damn good for birding. As mm-hmm. you know, uh, if you followed up on at least a couple sightings, in, um, in Cobbs Creek. Um, yeah. and you know, we had, a a little blue heron, which is pretty yeah. cool. Was it an adult or a youngster? Youngster, so, uh-huh. um, and it's kind of funny that it showed up. I don't think anybody chased it, which is interesting because Heinz, until very recently, are so we're based in Philadelphia. John Heinz National Wildlife Refuge is this wonderful tidal marsh in by the airport, um, and the because of the tropical storm or hurricane um, recently, a lot of the trails got washed out, lots of flooding, so people haven't been able to go. And that's like the spot for, you know, wading birds and waterfowl. And since it's been closed, people haven't have missed the opportunity to kind of get some of the birds that are like kind of guaranteed in the late summer, early fall. Um, because yeah, almost two months, almost two months. Yeah. No access to our best birding spot. Yeah. And that's, um, I mean, this is world-class. I mean, this is like, there's like, 
300, so about just shy of 300 species have been seen there. You know, I've gone to like places in like Thailand and they're like 240 species are seen here. And I'm like, we got about 300 just, you know, Heinz in Philly. Yeah. And, um, but so when the breeding, when the wading birds disperse from their colonies on the Delaware River, uh, Heinz usually gets an influx of them. And little blue heron is almost guaranteed in the early, late summer, early fall, uh, at Heinz. And since it wasn't, Heinz is closed. It's kind of interesting. One showed up at Cobb's. Like, obviously, the bird doesn't know, but <laughs> it could have been maybe the shoreline that it preferred was inundated. So it just kind of wandered farther afield. I'm not, I'm not quite sure if it's related at all. And the same reasons the refuge closed was the reason why this bird wandered, you know, further upstream than it might have not normally. But it was, it was great to see. And uh, I thought maybe more people would chase it just because they didn't know, you know, if you needed that for your, your year list, you weren't guaranteed to get it this year because of Heinz. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I was, I was checking on eBird. I remember I, I kind of heard someplace regionally, like right before the hurricane, I think, I can't remember if I heard about a report or I was just talking with some friends about what this, what birds that storm might produce. Um, and I was like, you know, I kind of, you know, in, in my pipe dream, you know, reality where i get to choose which rarities show up i'm gonna i'm gonna hope for a magnificent frigate bird to fly over so the day before the hurricane i went there to heinz i spent like i want to say like three four hours walking around put together a pretty complete list next day was the storm and that was the last ebird list entered there until a week ago you know like seven weeks about and um i mean just like on our on our bird philly chatter group on whatsapp you know somebody said yeah i saw this at heinz today and debbie beer i think it was debbie was like oh my god it's just so good to hear somebody saying you know (laughs) seeing anything at heinz um so awful nice to have it back i haven't been down yet but i think i'm going to get there this weekend yeah i like to um i might i gotta get there soon too i don't get there nearly enough because i don't live close there anymore um, magnificent frigate bird. That's a long overdue bird for Philly. You know, we've gotten it in the, you know, I think they've been in the suburbs, but they haven't been in, in the city, which in the city and the county are one of the same. Although technically depends on how you look at it. The city actually, it's larger than our county. Yeah. Cause there's all this weird city property, right. That extends beyond the official city borders. Right. So my park where I saw a summer tanager in um, the other day it was has is owned by the city of Philadelphia. In fact, you know, the residents on the other side of the Creek, which is technically Delaware County, the people who live there, they, they refer to like where their backyard ends and the park starts as is like, that's Philadelphia in their mind. And I, I literally had a meeting with like the mayor of upper Darby recently. And in their mind, they're like, that's Philadelphia, you know, <laughs> um, but in Marma, I'm in Arma, and so some birds will be sticklers and be like, "Well, it's not the county." And I'm like, "I care about my Philadelphia list, the city of Philadelphia. I don't care. I don't care about county. I care about the city. You know. So I think anything I see in property owned by Philadelphia, it's not like they own a warehouse like several miles outside the city. I mean, this is right. like like parkland. You know." So I think, yeah, it, it is, it gets the, 
the questions over where you draw or not you or anyone draws the lines as to what birds they can count in, in their patch city yard, you know, state, um, people definitely differ on that. And there's sort of older traditional rules and then there's eBird protocol rules. And I have definitely run afoul of some of our, our friends and colleagues because basically if I'm standing anywhere in Philly, I'll count whatever I see uh, as, you know, and that's, that's more or less what eBird protocol yeah. states. And I, uh, I, do, I've had, I've run afoul of the same people and they're like, you need to put another list in um, for, like you need to put another list in uh, because this bird was probably in Jersey waters. And I'm like, I was in Philadelphia. I care. And I think that's something that's kind of confusing. We're bird watching. We're not like this. Yeah, we're not the birds themselves. We're, we're bird watchers. Like and with, with no observer there, there is no sighting, you know? And eBird is taking a hobby and making it into data. Right. And people lose sight of that. And, so it's it's hobby it's a hobby based thing is right so it's not like this software was started just for to, to to make ornithological sightings and birders just started doing it it's like this was invented this was made for birders to turn our hobby into science into data so uh, i think we can't stop we can't lose sight of that and one of the things about um eBird is that you can follow up on sightings, right? Yeah. Now, if there's golden eyes and canvasbacks regularly seen from Pennypack on the Delaware, um, and you want to see those birds, and I put them in the list as New Jersey, like it's just a spot on the river of New Jersey, like what are you going to do? Like drive to that rich person's house on the river and like <laughs> sneak through the yard to get to the river to look at them? Yeah, or are you going to draw- generally those rich people tend to frown on that. From yeah. What I understand. Yeah. Or are you just going to drive up to a municipal part, a public parking lot and look across the river, you know, like that. So, you know, and much like my summer tanager, which did fly into Philly and my, you know, Townsend's warbler, which was seen on the other side or the outside of Flatcatcher that you um, fought up on, which unfortunately we didn't get to see by your, you know, the definition you follow for Philadelphia. Um, if you want to see those birds, you're not going to drive to like, um, park on like a residential street in upper Darby and then, and like walk down to the park, you know, you're, or, or like, you know, you're going to park in the parking lot in Philadelphia and walk down the trail, like 50 <laughs> yards to see the bird, you know, like, yes, yeah. and it's owned by Philly. So. You know, people get a little strange. I think a lot of these young bucks too. They don't. They don't know. They don't know. I was an early adopter of eBird. You know, like yeah, young bucks are like, oh, it's like I bird it without eBird for, you know, still the majority of my birding. So yeah, I'm with you, man. I think the the one that bo- the part that bothers me is like the is the if say you're on the river, you know, which here divides Pennsylvania from New Jersey, and you know these borders, these these kinds of border issues exist. Uh, throughout the country for anybody who is interested in this kind of stuff, um, which is perhaps a surprisingly uh, large amount of folks. But, you know, if if by the standards of like, you should count things where the birds are, then when we're, when we're looking along the river, it's like, you know, 
maybe not quite half, but a, a big chunk of the birds we would see, we would just not even census. And to me, it's like way more fun, way more interesting, and way more useful if you census everything you see than if you censor what you census. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it's like, okay, oh, there's a Sabin's gull across the river there in Jersey. I won't count that and I won't, you know, I won't bother mentioning it, you know, like, no, just, just Ebert it, you know, boom, done. 100%. In fact, I'm actually like, while talking to you, I'm, I'm looking to up, I got to go back about, man, it's like eight years or now to the, um, um, to um, that the last hurricane, um, not, not last, not, sorry, not last hurricane, like the major hurricanes in Philly that gave us good yeah. birds. Irene and Sandy were the two two that really produced birds, and it was here. the same year, right? Uh, no, they were one year apart. One year apart. Okay, so yeah, I'm looking at. Uh, so I've Sandy, I've, Sandy was mischief night, and. Um, and Irene was in August, the year before. So it was it was 2011. Was Irene 2012? Yeah, August. Uh, so August 28th, 2011. Um, I have on here. I, I got um, bridal turn for Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and other people would have put that bird in. Um, would have. I mean, that's other people. Um, recorded that bird but they put it in uh, um um they put jersey. it yeah they put it in jersey so yeah i mean our our sabin's goal that we saw that day is i think the only philadelphia record ever and it was we we did not photograph it um i mean it was i don't know how far away but far away um and yeah, like I don't I, – I think it was over Pennsylvania, I think, by the time we lost track of it. Um, and But it was like – you know, it was really kind of way up high over the river north of us. You know, there's no way anyone – I would defy anyone to tell us ex- what airspace that bird was occupying. But I can tell you exactly where I was, you know? Yeah, 100%. It's funny. I'm looking and I'm seeing like – I miss the Savage goal in the parasitic Jaeger. Um, I didn't get to the spot in time. You know, I saw the plenty of storm petrels and some other great stuff, but I, um, you brought the donuts, man. You brought the donuts and the coffee. No one, like you made an entrance. Everyone was like, Whoa, check out this guy. Like some people I think didn't know who you were. There was like people from not Philly that were there. And I remember you showed up with like the big jug of, that you can get from Dunkin' Donuts and then of coffee, and then, like, I don't remember how many donuts, but it was a lot. Like, two dozen, of course, man. I'm not, you know. <laughs> it's all business. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, like, I'm not a, I'm not, you know, I mean, what kind of person, if we're going to bring donuts, you're going to bring two dozen. Come on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, well, it certainly made an impression. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I used to do that for all my walks, and then it started getting. Then we started bird Philly together. It got real expensive. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden you get a lot of people showing up, right? Yeah, and then I'm like, this is like forty bucks a walk. You know, you do it for a hurricane and you're out of cold. It's one thing, but you do it, you know, every, you know. <laughs> but I, I promise I will do it every, every hurricane. All right, so that's every, a deal. You know. And often, often I'm the one, you know, that got the key to get us into the location too. That's um, right. That's right. You know, we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, 
next hurricane. But uh, yeah. Um, so Sarowski, um re- re- released these binoculars that have a headrest. Yeah, and they um, they abandoned their open hinge, which uh, depends on how you count it. Like the classic, I know you're a Zeiss man, and I mean I have some Zeiss um, as well. I have the old. Um, yeah, you're like a collector, dude. You're 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 in like another stratosphere when it comes to optics. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the you know the old By optics. The way, just right now, I have three peregrines soaring around in front of my place as we talk. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm a. Uh, yeah, I'm. Um, I want to coll- You know, I, I want to collect more than I do. They're just expensive. Um, they hold their value more than you think. You know. Yeah. Um, but. I uh, I've been trying to get these light. If anybody wants to sell me some like a Tridavid, um, the old, like the '90s ones with the cool rubber armor coating, you know, like the ridges. Like the, yeah, the ones that had like the they looked they were kind of like barrels, right? They were like barrel. Yeah, they had like the ridged um, rubber coating. Like those are tied with the Zeiss Seven Power. Uh, dialites or whatever as uh, my favorite binoculars of all time mm-hmm. um and um so i want both of those and i mean it's a sh- i mean sad story i have to find out what happened to them but my my cousin who was a uh, sam Orr, who was a bird bander yeah. um, and he died you know in um, like 81 or 80, he died the uh, over two years ago um he had the Zeiss seven power dialites and um seven forty twos, yeah. Yeah, and you know seven fifty two, I can't remember. Uh forty forty twos, I believe. And okay. the uh his his like sons I never met and um I don't think they realized that like my father and I had been in touch with Sammy over the, you know, they didn't even tell us. We, ha- I found out from the Hawk banding community he had died. Uh, although I just saw him, like um, I visited him not long before I went down. He was when he was in, ho- he called me, told me he was in hospice. So I went and visited him. The problem was, is like, you know, when his estate went, and I, I don't, I'm not his. Um, I would, I don't know what happened to his binoculars. I got to ask him about the banders because I'm just like, man, these are classic binoculars owned by. A legend and you know i mean i remember when the hawk banding conference was in town and i was walking around with my cousin sam or and like he was like royalty you know he's been mm-hmm. doing it since i mean literally like the late 40s you know jeez and I mean, he, he was in the navy and he banded like albatross on on like midway island after wow. he, he was a the spotter in a uh, patrol bombers you know he just missed i think miss world war ii and um so i mean he's it, you know, he was this amazing person. And like, so, I mean, I hope maybe one of his banding friends got him, but I was like, you know, I don't know what, I mean, no, we didn't find out. I mean, we found that he died and then like his, his sons didn't even tell us about his funeral. You know, they didn't even know um, to tell us because, um, you they know, he was, you guys were in touch. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, I don't think, you know, how, I don't know how much he talked to them, frankly. And, you know, and it was only honestly only because of birding um, and going in the band to see him um, see him work was how I really 
even knew him. I have other cousins that are I'm just as related to that I don't even know, you know. But it's because he had this interest. That, so I've been going to see him for 30 years, you know. Um, and the and I remember I'll never forget um the first time I was in the blind with him, a peregrine comes in and he get in, you know, he he gets it and bans it. But it's actually as soon as he it hits, it comes in and he hits the, the bow trap and it's captured. He looks at me and he goes, You just saw the best on both ends of the string. <laughs> nice. So I really wish he I had those. Um for, for sentimental reasons, obviously. Um it, as well as you know for my collection. But those binoculars, the 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 they kind of have an open bridge. There's those old Zeiss, but they don't go quite all the way to the end of the barrels. But I believe it was, you know, Sorovsky that came out with the ones where the, you know, you have the one hinge at the focus wheel and then the other at the very end of the binocular. Right, right. And yeah, those that's the first time I remembered seeing that was back in like right around 2000 when those came out. And I think those were like, they build them as the first binocular made specifically for bird watchers. Although I really wonder who else is using those Zeiss seven powers besides birders. Cause you know, hunters tend to use, you know, eight powers or whatever. And, and they yeah. certainly had those, those in there. Those 742s and those 1040 Zeiss, like I feel like through the eighties and nineties were what a lot of people were using. Yeah. When I got into birding, that was like the, you know, the big dogs had those, you know, and I was yeah. like, Ooh, I, I want, I want those. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the reason why I want the, the Leica's, uh, the old Tronovids is not the super old ones, although I'll take those, but I want to, you know, I got outbid on some seven power. I really want seven power. Cause I just want to, I want to, I was, I want to use this Leica still, you know, I want to just get some like cool, like, you know, easy, big field of view, um, binoculars for, um, warbler watching in the spring. You know, I want to be like, I want, like, I collect watches a little bit and I'm like, mm, what watch am I going to wear today? Although I got a new awesome watch that kind of makes me only want to wear that one. And, and, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I work, I always wake up, like, well, but watch am I going to wear today? Is it, I want to be like, mm, what kind of birding am I going to do today? And I'm like, oh, let me, let me grab my Zeiss 10 powers, some hawk watch. Mm, let me grab these like a seven powers, just a water watch, you know? Mm-hmm. I kind of yeah, think it'd be fun. Sort to of do. like it's having the right tool for the right job. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of like, you know, do a little retro, but, um, I'll, so anyway, um, when I first, when I got back in the birding, um, when Rambo started touring, I bought, my parents gave me Russian tanker binoculars that I frankly, that I've quickly broke, um, uh, falling down the mountain in Australia. And then I got some at a thrift store in Australia. And, and part of that tour, we went to Thailand and I could not see this blue beater bee eater for the life of me. And the guy who was on the same safari with me. Let me borrow his like a try of its. I think they were 10 power actually. And it was like, Oh, it was the first time I saw like the difference. And he was like, you know, you don't even have to spend this much. You can just go to like Cabela's and spend 300 bucks. So after yeah. that, I got, I got the old Monarch, which I still want somebody. Well, I think Paul um, from uh, Paul Riss of Canada is supposed to send those to me at some point. The, the Monarch ones for my collection. Um, I have to remind him about those, but anyway, so that, you know, my, I really want to collect some of these classic ones. I really want the old Bosch and Loam. Um, yeah, that was, those were actually my, my high school graduation gift from my parents were those Bosch and Loam elites. Which and, is funny. You know, the yeah. story behind that. 
You know that but just Bushnells, right? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. But those Bosch and Loeb binoculars are Bushnell binoculars. Huh. They are not Bosch and Loeb binoculars. Bushnell. These are the ones that came out like right around 1990. Yeah, and they uh, call they're they they're called Bosch and Loeb. Yeah, it does not say Bushnell on it, but they are That's not. Right. Yeah, they are not Bush, but Bosch and Loeb. They're not made by Bosch and Loeb. They are Bushnell binoculars huh. that Bushnell licensed the name Bosch and Loeb for their high end line. Wow, no, because I had Bosch, no idea. Bosch and Loeb made like like high end microscopes for science, so yeah. they thought that they could they could compete with Zeiss and and um, like I guess back then it was lights, right? You know, lights, they could compete yeah. with Leica and lights by yeah. by having this like elite product line. Um, but it's really just it was maybe Bush. No, and then when they stopped, um, the, that license went away. They, you know, they had their elite line, which is still very very good. But people, um, yeah, yeah, I don't it, know those those first like because Bushnell has since made like those smaller. They're, they're called elites, I think, still. Yeah. Um, and but they were I don't think they were ever as good as that first run that they made. And and the price went way down as well. Yeah. Like I think I think those Bachelon elites were originally like, I don't know, they were over a thousand dollars. And, you know, and in 1992 or whatever, that was a lot of money. Um, I mean, still a lot of money. But, um, you know, I think those Bushnell elites retail for less than a thousand and have for some time. Yeah. I want, um, um, I want those <laughs> and I want, um, I forget which model it is, but Swift made a really nice, uh, poor prison binocular that a lot of the Swift Audubon's maybe. Yeah. Not the eight. They were, they were eight and a half by 44. It's the only like eight and a half power binocular that I've ever seen that really was, that was popular. A lot of people have them. I think Frank Winfelder still uses them. Yeah, and I would uh I would love to have those for the collection. Yeah. Um but yeah, this I just like hate on open hinge binoculars. Um I I'm mad at Leica. I think um the Leica Leica was amazing for they they were able to make their 42 millimeter binoculars like the size of just barely bigger than almost any other company's 33 30 millimeter, you know, 32 mm-hmm. millimeter uh, like really knew how to make a really compact, but I, I, th- I felt like was like perfect in the hand. Like, you know, I kind of have, I'm a big guy. So I don't know. So the really small, like 33 binoculars, like they, they I could use them, but my hands got to fold over on each other. And, and so it's nice yeah, it's to get, com- it's not as comfortable. Yeah. Like were like the most comfortable. And, yeah. and then um, they, they went to the open hinge. And so does Zeiss. Although Zeiss are known for their balance, like they have like the perfect balance. So maybe the Noctavids, you know, if I like, I have that. But the what's yeah, the, that's what I was thinking when you're describing like a smaller Leica binocular that's you know still real good quality. I um, I know a lot of people do like those Noctavids, but the Ultravids are the ones that I liked. I loved like those were like perfect. Those you know that size. Um, like the Ultravids, and then they went to Noctavids, which are open hinge. And I talked to Jeff, was a Bolton? He's now at Coa, but he was telling me before that the reason why like went there is um, the only way to get more performance out of you know your, your images to make the barrels longer. 
And if you make the barrels longer to balance correctly and to keep them light, you have to make an open hinge design. Mm. And so, okay. and you notice like you're, you know, just like switch uh, victory, right? You use the victories. Yeah. Victory SFs. Yeah. That's yeah. Nice. They're very uh, nice victory SF. So they're all much longer now, but the binoculars are getting much, much longer. So that open hinge really helps with that. And I mean, everybody who love everybody. I mean, I feel like the victory SFs have become the binocular to get. I feel like, like if people nowadays go and want to spend, you know, two plus grand on binoculars, they tend to get those. I feel like yeah. they have the big, in my, from my observations, they have the biggest market share of the high end binoculars now. And I, I thought, think so. And I think before yeah. it was Sarovsky. Sur- and I think, I think it was Sarovsky and then Leica. And now I feel like it's Zeiss. And then maybe Leica and Sarovsky are like neck and neck, maybe a little bit more Sarovsky. Yeah. Um, but for a while, I think Leica was really getting up there. And then, but then the Zeiss came out with the victory and everybody went to the victory um, when they're so I'm sure. But, uh, but yeah, it's interesting that Sarovsky who pioneered the open hinge have gone to this, um, you know, a more traditional style, although they added the headrest. So what's up with that? Yeah. I am curious about the headrest. I just don't really understand. I know you can take it off, but um I don't know. It looks kind of weird to me, but uh, I mean, I, I feel like if I, I feel like it could, in, I feel like it could increase shake actually. Um, you know, yeah. cause it's like the more you touch these things, usually the more shake there is. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested, but yeah. I, I mean, when the binoculars from 10 years ago, five, 10 years ago that before they got real long, like they were still really good. They were yeah. so really, 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 really good. So I, part of me wonders if we're going to get into like diminishing returns with, you know, how long binoculars are getting is maybe they'll make some advancements in technology where you can go back to the smaller size. Like I'd still be, you know, I don't, I mean, I have, I have the style. I use Steiner's um, cause they sponsored the world's or world series team the uh, last couple of years. And they gave me their, they made one specifically to compete with, you know, Zeiss and, and um, Swarovski, what have you there, wildlife, you know, HDs or whatever. And I think they're fantastic. I love them. Mm-hmm. And they're open hinge. And I, I got used to it. Um, I think they're great. You know, Steiner makes a great product. They're really rugged, but I, I guess no one seems to be able to break into the birding market, but um, in the high end, but those three, three companies. Yeah, I, it, I mean, certainly in the high end, I think it's true. I don't, I don't know, I don't know if Steiner makes um, high end binoculars or not. Actually, I um, well, they used to, they they the ones I had were like, you know, two thousand dollars or whatever. And oh then, wow! But the people didn't buy them, and huh. they just gave those to me. But you know, people didn't buy them, and now they make ones and like, that are like a thousand dollars. But that's their huh. high end, the highest end yeah. ones. Gotcha. You know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, all the the big three, you know, uh, uh, Zeiss, uh, Swarovski, and Leica are all they're all good. You know, they're they're real good and pretty competitive to try to take away market share from from those. Uh, as you know, as you mentioned, I'm a big Zeiss guy. I like my Victory SFs ten by forty twos. I'm I'm about to. Uh, I'm I'm being sent a pair of their new 10 by 32 uh, binoculars just at, to review. I won't I won't get to keep them, but I'll have them for about a month, and uh, I'm really looking forward to testing those out. I think especially when watching along the river, 
you know, trying to have a good wide field of view or, uh, you know, looking for hawks, they'll be real good. So I'm, I'm, I'm real excited to try those out and even more excited that I just got a, uh, uh, a 95 millimeter, uh, Harpia Zeiss Harpia telescope, which is a big, bad, beautiful piece of equipment. Um, definitely, definitely one of the nicest, if not the nicest scope on the market. So, um, really looking forward to trying it out. I, I tested them out. I actually guided the tour that was the product launch for that scope. A couple of years ago, we went to uh, Panama to try to, to see and photograph and video the harpy Eagle for which the scope is named. The harpia is the genus for harpy Eagle. One of the, one of the most charismatic birds of prey in the world. Uh, They, you know, feed on sloths and howler monkeys and, and are just incredibly fierce predators. So we, I guided this trip down there in the rainy season to Panama and we did get to see uh, a harpy eagle twice. Uh, <clears throat> saw one beautiful big fledgling that was, it was, a, it was over a year old. So it was getting, it was getting ready to, uh, to, to kind of leave the area. Um, and that was pretty exciting. Um, so I got to use that scope a little bit then. And I was like, man, this thing is nice, but I didn't get to use it that much. Cause you know, it was mostly the scopes that were there were for the, the journalists and other, other people that were there. I was, I was more the guide, you know, directing traffic and, and finding birds and stuff. I didn't actually get to use it that much. So now I'm going to get to really, um, get to use it and I'm, I'm getting myself a new phone scope adapter so I can shoot some video. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. I'm gonna get, yeah, I'm going to get back into digiscoping. I haven't really done much digiscoping for the last couple of years, uh, but I'm looking forward to trying to get some new video, man. Try to get some some new uh, some new video content. Should be pretty fun. That was your first Harpy Eagle, right? Uh, that is correct. Although <laughs> I did actually see one before in Panama, uh, but it was it was a hacked bird. It was a bird that had been raised in captivity, and they'd released along the pipeline road in the canal zone there. And so it was free flying and on its own. But I think it was actually still being fed on occasion by the raptor researchers that had raised it. So it was it was like kind of scarily habituated to people. That my friend Carlos Betancourt, you know, who's been a longtime guy. Yeah, he's there. the Panama guy, right? Exactly. I mean, if for the Canopy family group, you know, the Canopy Tower, Canopy Camp, and Canopy Lodge, Carlos is is the main man. He's been doing it, geez, close to 20 years, but now. And he told me a story about that. He was like, oh, you saw that harpy eagle that's there. Uh, he was like, he said he'd been down there uh, birding the pipeline road. And uh, there was like a family of like four people and like a little like seven-year-old kid kind of like ran ahead of the family and, you know, went way up the road, kind of over the hill. They kind of lost sight of him. And a few minutes later, this little kid just comes running back like his life's depending on it, sprinting, you know, he's terrified and he's running over the hill and they see this harpy eagle you know, low in the trees following the kid. And they're like, Oh my God, what is happening here? And they were, you know, they totally thought that this harpy Eagle might like, you know, go after the kid. But of course 
what it turned out was the harpy eagle was 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 accustomed to being fed by humans, and so it was hoping for a meal. It never it never really got anywhere uh-huh. near the kid, but it scared the bejesus out of him, and the parents were terrified too. So everyone was like, "What's going on? There's a giant eagle attacking people," you know. But uh, in reality, it was just this this fledged bird. So I'd seen that bird there but i didn't really count that as seeing like you know a real true wild eagle uh, harpy eagle so that one yeah on that trip was my first real one no yeah i as as what i i you led all these tours to the tropics um for many years where you know i guess it's possible you know anywhere there's rainforest or you know any good areas of forest and you know in the neotropics is potential for harpy eagle there um and but it's really it's really hard to find them if they don't have a nest. And I saw one in Brazil, and it's the same the same thing. It was at a nest. It was a, a like an over year year old fledgling. But this one was interesting. Was um, it was a bummer. We went not a bummer. We saw a harpy eagle, but we saw we 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 saw the bird, and then we went for you know a hike and saw a bunch of other great birds. And we can't come back, and the birds eating a prey item. The parents had flown in. Uh, one of the parents had flown in with a prey item. Um, cause he was in the nest before he was, you know, this one was, you know, she, or he was whatever was in another tree near the nest and it had flown to the nest, uh, to eat what the parents dropped in. So we missed the feeding and we would have oh. got to see an adult and it, believe it or not, uh, what we believe that this, the prey item from what we can gather by looking at it through the scope and everything was that it was a Siriyama. Uh, uh, oh, Siriyama, like the Siriyama. The, yeah. Those wow that's is a hell of a prey item geez those things it's amazing what they can take but you know the, there was one in captivity at metro park there in panama big female and every now and then she, you know they have this big enclosure where you know sort of a zoo and, and this big enclosure where you could she'd sometimes she'd be perched pretty close by and you would just look at the wrists on the feet of these things and they're just enormous like they're, it's. I just couldn't believe how big the feet, the wrists. Like you can just tell that they're designed when they when they kind of drop through the forest canopy, you know, with the with a sight line on a howler monkey. That I just imagine that they they grab a hold of one of those things and they probably like crush the spine instantaneously. Yeah, it's just crazy. with the power of those feet and the. I mean the talons. I mean. It's just, it is really an impressive, impressive beast to see. Yeah, you know, and I decided I'm going to, you ever see those videos where people um, or white guys in sunglasses um, like <laughs> vet about stuff on their phone in a, in a car, in their trucks, that phenomenon? I feel, like, I, I feel like I've seen this, but didn't really realize it was like, a, you know. Yeah, it's always obviously conservative guys. So I'm going to start yeah, yeah. doing some in my nice. wife's, in my wife's Subaru. Um, <laughs> like a birder rants and nice. besides ranting about open hinge binoculars, I want to rant about um, that. Everybody says the harpy Eagle is the biggest Eagle in the world. It's one of the biggest it's yeah. top five for sure. Yeah. Maybe um, even top three, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's not, it depends also how you qualify biggest. Like, yeah. Like, you know. yeah, I mean, I know Australians would be like, well, the longest is the wedge tail. I'm like, yeah, it has a real long tail. It's not that big. It's smaller than a golden eagle. Yeah, exactly. But um, right. stellar sea eagle, I think, is clearly the biggest. By I think so too. I mean, that thing, 
That is a ginormous, just, yeah, those things are huge. And the bill on those things. Ridiculous. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, the it's like depth, a toucan eagle. Exactly. The bill is just huge. It's just huge. The base of the bill is enormous. And like, it's not like a salmon, nothing, nothing to, to mess with, you know, like, it's like, like a big old salmon is pretty big prey item, you know, like, yeah. And like, Plus those things, they got to fight each other off those stellar sea eagles, you know, like they, they gather out like in Japan, I, I've been to Japan once and to see them and, and, you know, there's, they basically, they gather around like fishing holes and, you know, there's a lot of jostling and for, and, you know, for position and, and, uh, you know, they, they, they gotta, they gotta fend each other off as well. Yeah. I did a count when I was in Hokkaido at the spot, you know, I saw a bunch of spots, but the one spot where there's lots of them. And I was like, I'm not going to like spend any time. I mean, not that it's hard to tell apart the juveniles from the white tails, but just like, you know, just so I could just do a quick, you know, just spot the big orange bill, the big white shoulder patches. Right. So I'm just going to count counting adults and, yeah. and only the ones on the ground, not the ones in the air. Cause it's too much work. I kind of 84. Yeah. That place is in- insane. I mean, it's intense. I actually, the time I was there, Tony, I didn't get to enjoy it quite as much as I'd wanted to. Cause I took like, you know, it was, I had, it was me and Phil Gregory guiding a group of 14 people and I stepped out on the ice. I was like the first one out and went straight up to my waist in water. Oh and, man. And we it was, almost, I mean, that's one of the cold, the Siberian uh, air current runs through there. That's it's one of the coldest places I've ever been on earth. That's and, horrible. Uh, and so, yeah, everyone else was like, uh, should we keep going? And, you know, the thing was, it was really only thin right along the sh- edge of the shore there. The further yeah. out you got, the thicker the ice was. So it was fine. But I had to go back to the bus. So I like I could see them in the distance. There's a few flying by pretty close. But they all the rest of the group went out to some of those holes in the ice fishing holes. And and they, you know, they were like point blank from these things. And I had to go back to the bus. because. Oh, you know, I was going to, I was going to be in a bad, bad place if I didn't get warmed up. So I go back to the bus. It's like a 15 minute walk back to where the bus was left us off and the bus is gone. <laughs> the oh, bus man. isn't there. Turned out they'd had some issue with it. They had to replace the bus. So I just start like jogging in place, like running in circle, trying to keep warm, oh. waiting for the bus to come back. And finally it came back after a while and our new bus came and I was able to, you know, get changed, get warmed up. But by that point, everybody was back and they were like, ah, that was wonderful. Oh, and I was man. like, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Our, my driver, well, not my driver, my friend who was driving us. Yeah. Cause I went with my band Rambo toward Asia and I flew in a week early to go to Hokkaido with the guy booking our tour. Cause Hokkaido is interesting to people who aren't birders too. It's like the Alaska of Japan. Right. Yeah. And he rented a car, which was a four wheel drive, which he kept referring to as a four double D. And I was like, I was like, the four double D. I was like, don't get me wrong. I'm all for double D, but <laughs> four wheel drive. Anyway, he misunderstands what I say. I was like, I, I pointed at the Eagles and he starts to drive the car onto the ice. Oh, God. And but luckily we got stuck in a snowbank. So we couldn't go very far and we got had to get pulled out. But not very often you say, you know, luckily we got stuck in a snowbank. I know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a magical place. We, we believe it or not, like I think we're, I, I think we both have a hard out at five thirty, um, and it's five twenty-five. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, I, I got to roll. Kristen and the puppy are going to be here soon, and all hell is going to break loose. Yeah, and I got to be, I got to be a daddy. Yeah, man. 
So, yeah. man, this went quick, but, uh, you know, let's try not to wait as long. So two weeks standing. Uh, uh, maybe we could do this as a standing um, appointment every two weeks. I like it. Yes. Yeah. Say hey to Angie and Azalea. And uh, likewise to you good. and yours. To yours. Yeah. Awesome, buddy. Cheers. All right. Cheers, everybody. Like it, subscribe, all that stuff. <laughs>